Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Friday, the 1st of October. Yeah, third quarter is over. Q3 done. Good day to think about giving God a little ROI report, return on his investment. I know you're going to hear a lot today about Wall Street fluctuations and Wall Street futures. And let me just uh, invite you to consider the future of the kingdom of God, which is totally intact. Mm-hmm. The future is bright for those who have the kingdom of God uh, and, and the inheritance that we have with all the saints. When we keep those things in mind, um, trust me, the fluctuations in the, in the market of our day, um, well, they will be just that, fluctuations in the market of a day. So uh, we're going to talk a lot today about the prophet Daniel. And so I want you to uh, consider the reality of Babylon. I want you to consider the reality of the people of God being conquered because of their disobedience, because they had forgotten God, because they had, uh, in large measure, turned from the ways of the Lord, sought to, they were seeking to compete as, you know, just a regular nation, just another nation, one among many. And we're going to talk about Daniel because we have been this week uh, at Faith Radio and in the Faith Radio family reading the book of Daniel and studying it together. If you missed out on any part of that, I encourage you to go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can still join us in our Reading the Bible program. We've been reading the first six chapters of the prophet Daniel this week. Um, And so let me just set up a, a, a bit of a conversation this way. There are some things that you may think you know about Daniel, right? As soon as I say it, like you remember that Daniel was the guy in the lion's den. Maybe you uh, remember that Daniel was the guy who was able to read the writing on the wall. Maybe you remember that Daniel was the guy who had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Neither Daniel nor his friends arrived with those names. They were young men, teenagers in Jerusalem. When the Babylonians arrived and not only conquered the people of God, uh, but destroyed the temple of God. Something that the Jews could never have imagined would ever happen. Daniel and his friends um, would have then walked for some four or five months as a part of a mass deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon. They did not, uh, well, if they knew, if they knew what had happened to their families, what they knew was not good. Um, it's interesting to me that Daniel is one of only four names we know from all the people deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's just settle on that for just a moment. Um, Daniel might be remembered as famous for interpreting the proverbial writing on the wall or miraculously surviving the lion's den, but I want to talk with him, talk with you about him today. 
for the gift that the book of Daniel is to those of us living in a time when we feel like, we feel like we've just woken up in Babylon. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. The first six chapters of Daniel this week, uh, you can still join us. Go to MyFaithRadio.com. Join us in uh, the Reading the Bible Together initiative. You can listen to the podcast that uh, sweet uh, Angie Smith has been posting each and every day. You can download uh, the Bible study resources from our colleague at the University of Northwestern, um, Anna Rask. She is a professor there and has written a Bible study for us, so we'd have downloadable notes and things to follow along with. Very, very helpful. Susie Larson uh, posted a blog about it this week at MyFaithRadio.com as well. She says this, we have entered a new era. In times past, here in North America at least, people respected Christianity, even if they uh, didn't subscribe to our faith. Many knew and appreciated that Christians had a lot to do with ministering to the poor in remote areas and global relief work engaging with local communities and building strong families. And in general, there was a high regard for believers. Not so much anymore. Christianity is not only no longer embraced, it's also opposed. We've entered the day that the Apostle Paul predicted in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, this is my colleague Susie Larson in her blog posted at MyFaithRadio.com. She's quoting here from 2 Timothy chapter 4. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the, tr- the truth and chase after myths. <laughs> uh, if that doesn't sound like today, you're not paying attention. Um, because those are the days in which we live. Those are the days uh, in, in which we are trying to figure out how now shall we live. That's a question that has been asked in every generation of Christians that have been paying attention. Um, Alistair Begg has a a new book, Brave by Faith, uh, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. Uh, He and Susie talked about that on her program. Alistair says this, we are in Babylon. God is sovereign even here. Nothing is actually out of control. Nothing is about to get out of control. But given the pushback of 21st century secularism, you and I are going to face challenges. Resolve, um, Resolve now. Think through where to draw the lines you will, you will not cross. So let's just consider that for a moment. Um, resolve now to draw the lines you will not cross. What are they? What are the lines you as a Christian will not cross when the culture comes knocking? Well, more than knocking. When the culture comes demanding, demanding something of you. It's going to be, it is costly to be a Christian, and it's going to get more costly. And we talk about costs in our culture, we all think of material costs. We all think of um, economic costs or economic restrictions or restrictions in the marketplace. But there is also, you know, the cost that we pay in the marketplace of ideas, the places we no longer get invited or the places 
from which we get disinvited or where we get deplatformed. We feel like the circle of our influence maybe is shrinking. There's fewer people paying attention and listening to what we have to say. That is a loss we perceive as well. So when you think about uh, the lines you will not cross, those lines will come with costs. I want you to consider the declaration, the faith declaration of Daniel. We read it in chapter 2 of uh, the prophet Daniel. Daniel says in in chapter 2, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies behind in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Do you know, fellow Christian, dear brother or sister in Christ, do you know the faith possessed of Daniel? Do you know that faith? Do you live with that kind of confident knowledge that though you woke up in Babylon, though you live a long way from the place where you thought your faith was the governing principle of the culture, remember, Daniel is a very young man having been deported, um, conquered. His people were conquered. I mean, the goal, I mean, there's just no question. The goal of the Babylonians was uh, was genocide, right? They're trying to wipe out the culture that existed. Um, they changed these boys' names. They uh, introduced them to new practices, a new language, a new diet, new forms of worship, um, and they no longer lived in in a in a generational setting where uh, the things of their parents and grandparents would be passed along to them. But see, here's what we have to know about Daniel. He's raised in a very, very faithful Jewish home, very, very faithful parents who clearly uh, were governed and guided by the teachings of, of their sacred texts, that which we call the Old Testament. How do I know that? Because Daniel uh, quotes the prophet Jeremiah, from heart, by heart. It's not like he's carrying around scrolls in his, uh, you know, in his proverbial pocket. He quotes at length the prophet Jeremiah, who you will remember is the weeping prophet. And so when, when culture presses in, when culture demands things of us, when Babylon, the Babylon of our day, uh, presses in upon us, what are the lines that we will have decided we're just not going to cross? There will be a line, and it will be costly for you to not cross it. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Daniel is the prophet who speaks so deeply to our times, and we're going to continue talking about him in just uh, just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking a little bit this morning about the prophet Daniel and what we can learn from him as we face the challenges, cultural challenges today as 
Christians in what increasingly feels like a foreign land. So I want to talk uh, briefly here about the way that Daniel's parents clearly invested in him, uh, invested the word of God in him, raised him in uh, in the way that he should go, and he did not depart from it. Be reminded that uh, his parents would have been guided by the Shema in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They would have done this. They would have taught their son a hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Um, they would have knit those into his heart. They would have, as, uh, as Moses says in Deuteronomy, impressed them on their children. They would have talked about God and the love of God and the character of God and the goodness of God and the steadfast nature of God and what God had done to deliver them, and the calling of God, and the law of God, and yes, the sin of their own uh, culture, the sin of their own day, the ways in which the people living around them in Jerusalem had turned away from God. Daniel would have understand, uh, would have understood um, that the that God allowing the Babylonians to overrun Israel um, was judgment. He would have understood that. He would have understood the destruction of the temple and the massacre of his people um, as judgment, legitimate judgment of God. So he would have had uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, in his mind as a person who somehow God was using in a way that Daniel would not have understood, but in a way that Daniel could have looked at and said, you know what, Um, Joshua ended up in I mean, Joseph ended up in um, in Egypt for a reason. You know, like God had a purpose there. God was working out his thing. Maybe God's doing that now through me. I'm going to trust that. Daniel lived the Shema at all times and in all places and under all circumstances. He loved the Lord his God always and in all ways, regardless of what was going on around him or who was ruling the day. I want you to consider that for a moment as you and I consider how we're going to live in the Babylon of this day. Um, So you might feel like you woke up in Babylon this morning. You might feel as if, you know, you're living in exile. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the New Testament writers understood that this world is not our real home. We get pretty comfy cozy here. We like it a lot. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. But it's not our real home as Christians. We are citizens of another kingdom, and we are subjects of a different king. Peter says it really plainly in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We are exiles on the earth. Paul wove it into his letters, I mean, through and through. Do not be conformed to this age. Um, uh, he talked about being transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But our exilic reality does not mean that we don't care what becomes of the culture in which we live. So I think that's part of the challenge we face. Do we recognize that there is a cultural devolution happening all around us in in every institution of our day? Yes, we see it. We live in the midst of it. We chronicle it. We address it every single day. Um, But we don't do so um, in order that we might turn away from the world. And I think that's the challenge for Christians, right? 
We know that our citizenship is in heaven. From there, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. We know with the writer of Hebrews, and we affirm that uh, we have no lasting city here. We seek the city that is to come, Hebrews 13.14. And we live like Daniel, confident in our identity as the children of God in the midst of a very perverse generation. I'm thinking here about Paul's admonition to the Christians in Philippi. They were living under Roman rule in much the same way that Daniel lived under uh, the, the various rules of the kings of his day. Uh, Paul, uh, you know, Paul admonishes. You know, he says, this is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ you may be proud uh, that you did not run and run or labor in vain. So in every generation of Christians past, uh, this question has been asked, how then shall we now live? I mean, how with everything that's going on, how then shall we now live? And that's, that's the question we pose as God's people in this generation. So let me answer it this way. Live like Daniel. Live like Joseph. Live like Stephen. Live like Peter. Happy sojourners who understood well the beatitude of Christ. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, um, how now shall we live? How then shall we now live? Well, we shall live like the people of God have lived in every generation on the earth. The Jews first and now the Christians We live unto God. We live as unto the Lord. Recognizing, as John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It has since the fall. It will until Christ returns in triumph to fully institute the kingdom of God here in the midst of the kingdom of the world. So what do we do in the meantime? The the time in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. The waiting time. While the world is groaning with eager longing for redemption, this time before the age of glory, what do we do? Well, we're not passive. We weep. We weep at the immorality of the culture as it devolves. We resist the temptation to grow cynical or cold toward the hurt of the world that God so loves. And we live into our calling as salt and light and leaven. We do not withdraw. We stand and we shine. Not that we might ever dominate, but that we might always illuminate. That's the witness of the prophet Daniel for our day, to shine as a person of light, a person of truth, a person of integrity, no matter who rules your day. Think of all the people who ruled and died in the days of Daniel, who lived, I might note, to a ripe old age and is remembered today as a prophet to whom the people of God continue to listen. His influence is great, even if his dominion was none. All right, we're going to take a brief break. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk with Dan DeWitt. 
We are going to do a little weekend worldview reader review. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. The resurrection of Mickey Mouse. Really? Really? Today's a big anniversary for Disney World. We're going to talk with Dan DeWitt about the mouse. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When moms and dads are in the thick of it, when every day brings up a new conflict and teens seem to change personality by the week, it's hard to keep the goal in mind. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The goal is this. Mom and dad, you're preparing your child to function independently in the world. You're giving her the skills she needs to live an autonomous life. So how do you reach the goal today? Don't be afraid to let disappointment and rejection into your child's life. They've got to face it sometime. And talk through the conflicting messages in our culture. Don't isolate them to a protective bubble. And finally, demonstrate commitment and character in your personal life. You're a bigger role model than you think. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Dan DeWitt's uh, walk-up music, so he's back. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find what we're talking about today at theolatte.com. Dan, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? I I am well. I am well. Let us talk about the resurrection of Mickey Mouse. That's a pretty provocative uh, title. What's going on? Well, so today's a big day for Walt Disney World. It's their 50th anniversary. So the countdown on their website now today reads zero. So, so it's we're here. And um, I wrote the article because I, I follow a couple accounts, social media accounts that um, skeptics that are I'm following skeptics. That's what I'm trying to say. They're social media accounts. And they had a link to um, Walt Disney being raised from the dead, as it were, from his frozen state. And this goes back to like a long-standing fake news story that probably originated shortly after his death that Walt Disney was frozen. And there has been a lot of Internet kind of traffic in recent history that they were going to resurrect him today, that today or sometime in the near future would be the time that he would be resurrected. So my story is about how two things. One, that's fake news. He was actually the opposite of frozen. He was cremated. And then the second thing to say— the reason we long for this kind of resurrection is because, as King Solomon tells us, God has placed eternity in our hearts. So let's let's just talk for a moment about um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why it matters. I mean, there's a reason that we place our faith in Jesus, and it's not just that he was— um, God incarnate, you know, the the living God born into human reality in in flesh. And it's not just that he died um, upon the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, um, but the resurrection matters. Can you talk about that? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. The Apostle Paul said if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then we might as well live out this Epicurean philosophy that he quotes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, um, which Sol- King Solomon said something very similar to that. And really, in terms of this hypothetical, if there is no God, and for the Apostle Paul, it's not just if God exists, but if he hasn't revealed himself in history in a way that we can know him, then we might as well just enjoy this current moment. So the resurrection of Jesus transforms the world um, and from a cold, dark cosmos that just doesn't care about us, and our wishful thinking can't change that, no matter how much you want it to be something different. You can't change reality by wishful thinking. What could change it is if there's a God outside of the time, space, matter, energy, universe, the material world, who enters into it to give us hope and meaning and purpose and give us an example. And so Jesus's death for us is crucially important because we can't, you know, we can't satisfy God's anger towards our sin, but his resurrection shows that his payment was accepted and that he defeated the things he came to defeat, that he defeated the serpent from Genesis 3, from the garden, that he defeated death itself. And so I, I like to think of the, the scene in The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> when I think about the resurrection, in terms of when Dorothy lands at Oz and, and the movie goes from black and white to full color, I think that the resurrection of Jesus is like that, that it transforms this cold, dark world into now all of a sudden it's filled with meaning and purpose and possibility and, and hope. And so the resurrection of Jesus, um, we, we need not say Christ has risen and nothing else matters, but rather Christ has risen and now everything matters. Um, I want to talk with you about another piece you have posted at Theolatte.com, and this is about the Jesus Bible. Um, so we're going to ask the the question, you know, what would the Bible what would Jesus's Bible have included and what would it look like? And uh, uh, listeners right now, Dan, have been um, studying along with us in the book of Daniel this week. We've been, it's been a part of what we've been reading together at Faith Radio. And we only did the first ch- six chapters this week. And so I want to tee up the conversation about the Bible that Jesus, like what would Jesus's Bible have been by provoking among our listeners this question. When Daniel refers to the scriptures— what is he talking about? So when we're reading the Bible and there's a and there is an author or a prophet, um, there's a there's a speaker who's referring to the scriptures. We should pause there and ask ourselves: When Daniel refers to the scriptures, what is Daniel talking about? And so when Jesus um, refers to the scriptures, what is he talking about? All right. So Dan, when Jesus. Uh, makes use of the scriptures, or when we would think about the the Bible that Jesus would have been accessing. Now, again, this is a human conversation because, mm-hmm. as the as the author of it, right, he's accessing whatever he wants. So, right. Yeah. So, talk with us. Talk with us about this post at theolatte dot com, the Jesus Bible. Well, so I put on social media, you know, a, a link to this article, and I just asked the question: What Bible did Jesus use? And then I had a link to this story. And it was funny because Beth Moore, the popular Christian speaker and author, responded, KJV. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that kind of sparked a, some interesting you know, comments, and pe- we, people had fun with that. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what would Jesus have um, 
been drawing from, like you said, even with Daniel as an Old Testament author, what was he drawing from? And so the the Bible that Jesus would have used and had access to was probably a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, so that would be the Septuagint. So that's one answer, and several people responded online with that. And there there's some textual evidence that we have the uh, the Gospel writers drawing from this Greek translation um, of the Hebrew Scriptures. But what I'm really getting at was not necessarily that it was a Greek translation, but that it was ordered dif- differently. And so the Old Testament, in terms of the Jewish Scriptures, is the exact same and totally different. And so what I mean by that is that it has the exact same content, um, but it's organized differently. So if you have an Old Testament prophet talking about the the law, he's probably speaking about the first part of the organizational structure, and it's kind of a Hebrew acrostic. It's the transliteration for it, to use all these kind of academic jargony words, is Tanakh, which stands for the Torah, which is the law, and then you have the um, Navim, um, which are the prophets, and you have the Ketavim, which are the writings. And long story short, it's organized around the chronology of the history of God's chosen people. And so it ends with Chronicles, for example. And so in the Jewish scriptures, it only has 24 books, whereas our English translations have 39. And so some people might ask, well, it's missing 15 books. But to give you one quick example, they compact a lot of books that we separate out individually. So all of our minor prophets, um, they have consolidated in the Book of the Twelve as one book. And um, also, anything that basically has a sequel in the Old Testament is just one book. So the Old Testament still begins with Genesis, but it doesn't end with Malachi, it ends with Chronicles. Not First and Second Chronicles, just Chronicles. So the Bible Jesus used, just like ours, but in terms of content, but totally different in terms of its organizational structure. This uh, this question emerged um, earlier this week uh, because somebody was asking me uh, in an email, when we talk about the dates related to Daniel, right? Like we are looking back at those dates and we are superimposing um, a BC uh, AD timeline. Like, we are superimposing. And so this person was asking, how would Daniel have understood, like, the date of the t- days in which he lived? Mm-hmm. And so just think that, I mean, I think these conversations are provocative. Like, it's helpful for us to pause and just say, hey, it hasn't always been, you know, it, the, the marker in history hasn't always been, oh, the Babylonians, you know, uh, uh, took over uh, Jerusalem and deported people in 605 BC. Well, they would not have understood time in that way at their time, in their time. That's right. Right? I mean, it's just not, that's just not how that, it was the, it was the days of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Medes or the Persians, and it was marked by who was the king at the time. And so that's why when we look at those stories, it's, you know, it was this year of this king of this empire, because that's how people understood the passage of time. And now we mark it all by the king of the ultimate empire, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we just look back and we just count it all according to uh, to Jesus. And I think that's pretty cool. And it's a good reminder um, to us that, you know, everything changes with Jesus, even the way we record time. Absolutely. It, um, it, it transforms everything. And in many ways, you know, after the Old Testament closed with the, you know, the final prophet Malachi writing his prophecy, um, 
it was hundreds of years before the Messiah would show up. And so, and God removed his spirit from the temple. He was no longer speaking through the prophets. It was a dark, desperate time while they're waiting for the Messiah. And we have something of a parallel today. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, I'll be back. And we are clinging to promises that were written ages ago, waiting for Christ to return. And just like we look back now, like if they only knew they were so close to the Messiah showing up, um, one day I think in eternity we'll look back and go, man, we didn't even realize um, where we are situated in terms of God's redemptive history. All right, I'm looking at the Weekend Worldview Reader. It is posted at theolate.com. I'm a little disappointed that the video of the week is not the guy in Florida getting the alligator into the trash can, (laughs) but there is great stuff posted here. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dan DeWitt. We'll be right back. Who's the leader of the truck that's made for you and me? Today is another day. Today is another day in which you and I live and breathe and find our being. So uh, how are we resolving the mystery of life and can it be solved by science? Talking with Dan DeWitt, I'm looking at the Weekend Worldview Reader posted at Theolatte.com. And one of the articles you've got on here is from Big Think, and it is the mystery of life cannot be solved by science. Dan, are you sure? I'm just trying to recover from the Mickey Mouse <laughs> leading song. <laughs> you know, and, um, here's the thing. Every single day, part of my challenge is to recover from whatever <laughs> Paul plays because he has these moments of inspiration during the show. Or and so, dementia or something like that. <laughs> so we've had um, we had the sound of, of coffee pouring, which you would have totally loved. See, yeah. Paul, Dan would have loved the pouring coffee, the Maxwell House I'll theme have to song. get that because today is International Coffee Day as opposed to National Coffee Day a few days mm-hmm. ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's, also, it's also like, uh, you, you let me know, it's also like a dog day. Like, I don't know, dog, Black Dog Day and then like the, the, the Fire Dog Day or something, right? Fire and Pup it's Day. Green Day. Green Day. Oh, day. Yeah. What do you mean it's Green Day? <laughs> World Vegetarian Day, Hair Day, Poetry green Day. Green Day had a song that is Wake Me Up When September's Over. Paul September and educated ends. me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. So oh. We had a Green Day moment there. <laughs> okay, well, I assume that we're going to hear that at the very end of today's program then because that sounds really, really good. Hey, okay. thank you, Carmen. Thank you. Yeah, I, I requested I that, and I got the mouth <laughs> song instead. So the mystery of, the mystery of life. <laughs> Yes. Well, now that the mystery of how the songs are chosen has been resolved, um, how uh, it's still a mystery. Um, how how is it that we go about conversing, studying, resolving the conversation about the mystery of life? So this article is really interesting because he's dealing with what's known as re- reductive materialism. So, like an atheistic view of the world that would reduce everything down to a physical explanation. And there are a lot of people who think that that's possible. They even think sometimes that they're doing that, that they're only looking at these kind of scientific facts. When the truth is, um, we we don't live for, most of us aren't living our lives for these kind of like physical laws that we could study um, scientifically. We're not waking up like just totally amped for the day because of the law of gravity. Um, that's not what we live for. You know, we live for friendship and truth and justice and beauty and all these kind of things that have no scientific kind of way to uh, analyze them. 
we live for things like um, doing the the right thing and pursuing the good life. Um, science can't unpack those. There's no way for science to access those those values. So this article saying, look, we know that reductionism gives us a very cold, sterile view of humanity. So there has to be some other way to to make sense of things. And their their alternative to that, um, and by the way, this kind of cold reductionistic view leads to what's known as nihilism. It's just a recognition, you know, you could go out and look at the stars at night. They don't care about you. The cosmos just does not care. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no moral distinctions, all those things. So that's nihilism, and people don't like living there. And so the alternative in this article is existentialism. And existentialism simply says, you know, you exist. There's no purpose here, so you have to create it yourself. And the problem with existentialism is ultimately people realize that if if our values are things we just make up, um, even if there's a few of us who agree on it, can that really sustain us through life? So it's a helpful critique of reductionism, but it also doesn't offer a compelling alternative, which is we need something outside of this universe to give us meaning and purpose. All right. Instead of reductionism, can I be an advocate of expansionism? Hmm. Like, right, I get up every morning for the gospel's advance. I get up every morning to see the name of Jesus made famous. I get up every morning to, um, you know, extend the kingdom of God or the claim, uh, the, the claim that we lay as God's people in the, or on the earth today. Like, I just want to take back, I don't, not even a square inch. Like, I think that's probably more than I'll get in my whole lifetime in terms of reclaiming what Satan thinks he has stolen or robbed from God. Like, right. So just, uh, that's, that's what gets me going. So I might be an expansionist, not a reductionist. Well, and that's, you know, that's such, we all, you know, Francis Schaeffer said, we, we, people who reject God, um, live with a certain kind of borrowed capital. Like we can't just live in this nihilistic cold world. So we live with all these kind of values that really don't make sense, um, or, or rather to say it this way, they only make sense in terms of a Judeo-Christian way of seeing the world. And so often people are borrowing capital from the Judeo-Christian worldview as if they're real persons, that they make meaningful decisions, that there's a purpose for their life, that there are moral distinctions. Those are all the kind of things that are true if God exists and if he's knowable and if he's good. And, of course, all those things are true as revealed in in the Bible. I heard um, Dr. Al Mohler in one of his recent uh, podcasts on the briefing, which is just one of the things I love to listen to. He he talked about that and the way uh, the visual description that he kept using was, you know, it's like trying to build a house uh, in the air. Yeah. And you, you can't build a house in the air. I mean, it isn't you, you you just can't do that. Like, right. It has to have a foundation. You're building it on something. And so any time that. Um, you see or hear or recognize that uh, someone who rejects God but is borrowing, as you describe it, capital from the Christian worldview, or from the Judeo-Christian worldview, um, you, you should point it out and you should say, you know, you can't have that building block. You cannot construct uh, what you're talking about on a building block that you borrowed from a, a worldview you don't hold. Uh, and so, anyway, I just think it's just really helpful, this this idea of borrowed capital. All right, anything else in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader that you want to highlight for folks as a, you know, a little tidbit 
to uh, to get them to want to come to theolatte.com and taste and see what you've posted there? <laughs> well, I would point them to Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, which is a book written by a friend of mine, Jarvis Williams. We go, Jarvis and I go way back, all the way back to, we went to college together. And so I would encourage you to consider that book. It's a really helpful biblical survey related to diversity with application towards our current moment in time and the way we talk about um, diversity today. And then I have a video from a guy. I am so late to the game. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. It's the 10-minute Bible hour guy. (laughs) And he looks like Chris Pratt. He's funny like Chris Pratt, the actor, but he's obviously well-educated in terms of theology. He's winsome. He's funny. And so I've got a video to—and his name's Matt. I I don't know what his last name is, but he's the 10-minute Bible Hour guy. So the 10-minute Bible Hour guy looks like he's sitting at my house. Like, right? Does does everyone have a a bookshelf that looks just, like, exactly like that? Like, I appreciate that he's in, like, a flannel shirt and a ball cap— and his books, like nobody has said, dude, you need to line them up. They need to be standing up straight. Like what is going on back there? It's a little bit askew. Anyway, I have huh? looked at You're the books on his bookshelf. Stuff. I know I've looked at the books on his bookshelf and I'm thinking, yeah, that guy could be at my house. Like I, I read those. Those are, that's how I judge people. Let me just go ahead and say, Dan, there's a little insight for you. If you post something and you're sitting in front of a bookshelf, I may not first listen to what you're saying, I may first look at the books on your shelf and say to myself, is this somebody I want to listen to? Are they reading things I think are worthy of being read? There you go. You're judging a person by the book cover. I see how it is. I Oh, yes. <laughs> by the covers of the books behind them on the shelf. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Hey, thanks, brother. There, That is our cue music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good to the last drop. You are good to the last dot and tittle. There you go. Dan DeWitt. Cedarville University. You can find him at theolatte.com. Check out this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. We'll be right back. All right, September is over, October is here. It is Q4, the fourth quarter of the year. It's a great day to revisit um, all the plans we made at the beginning of the year, the things that we intended to uh, check off or, or accomplish or maybe avoid. I don't know, what was on your list at the beginning of the year? You and I have a quarter left to accomplish it. It's also a great day to just start over again, 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 if you need to. Begin again, again today, if necessary. Third quarter is over. Good time to reflect on the return on God's investment in you by the power of the Spirit. And yes, we have another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.